In brightest day, in blackest night, all other podcasts tremble in fright. Losers cower before the power. Oranges lust and blues you can trust. Indigos feel and white ones heal. Yellow scare and green ones dare. That sapphire love and black hands glove will rock your foundation without hesitation. Chad and Mars face evil's might. Respect their power for they'll make you see the light. Hi, everybody. I'm Chad Bokelman. I'm Mark Marble. And this is the Lantern Cast. Episode 290. That's right. We are talking Green Lantern, Fear Itself, the 1999 or 1998? I think it was 99. Yeah. The 1999 original graphic novel published by DC Comics, written by Ron Mars with art by Brad Parker. Um, We've been wanting to do this for a little while. Um... And uh, we're just going to hop right into it today. Uh, I, I, I was going to say, you know, it's going to be a shorter episode, but every time we've said that lately, it ends up being longer than we originally thought it would be. So we're thinking maybe a shorter episode since it's just one thing to cover, really, but I, <laughs> I guess we'll see. I'm going to take the under two hours on this, on this episode. <laughs> Whew. Uh, but that's only awesome. I was, I mean, for most people, they're going, "What the hell are you talking about?" If you can't, if you can't do this in less than two hours, but there is, but there are a few other things we wanted to talk about at the end, unrelated to this issue, and that's why we have to. That's where the asterisk comes in because it all depends. If we can bring, we can wrap up fear itself in around an hour, then we should be pretty safe in meeting the other. <laughs> and we actually have a third person's thoughts to sort of inject, but not. It's not really even that. <laughs> that many thoughts so <laughs> so we'll see <laughs> we'll see how how we can get this done so this is as i said written by ron mars with art by brad parker uh letter chris Eliopoulos. um it's uh it's a story involving alan scott hal jordan and kyle rayner it takes a place uh across these three uh different eras of green lantern's history now it's not like a time travel type story where they're all like facing the same uh, threat together, but it's a threat that each of them face once in their uh, tenure as Green Lantern, and it's telling that arcing story of this monster. In a lot of in a lot of ways, the monster is sort of the main character, since it's the only thing that remains for the most part consistent um, throughout it. But it starts off other than that dollar bill. <laughs> no, that's true. It starts off with a dollar bill, uh, focusing in uh, on the, of course, the, the top of uh, the top of the pyramid. Um, the all-seeing eye, indeed, the Illuminati sign. Uh, so, um, starts off during World War II. Um, this uh, gentleman uh, gets out of a cab and walks into the Smithsonian, looking for the basement. Uh, he is very the the uh, security guard uh, in the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian notices his accent. Uh, of course, this is World War II. He's recognizing a German accent, uh, and the guy just lies and said he's Swiss from Geneva. Um, 
he goes downstairs, and down in the basement of the Smithsonian, they have housed the actual Eye of Osiris, the capstone of the Great Pyramid of Giza. So what they do is they take out a talisman and a book of spells and perform a Nazi ritual uh, to awaken whatever's inside there. Um, He mumbles a spell. uh, It goes wrong. And the uh, all-seeing eye of Osiris breaks open. Now, we don't see what happens just yet as we cut over to the front of the White House where there's a photo op uh, being taken alongside of FDR with the JSA. FDR pulls uh, Green Lantern aside. There's a bit of propaganda speech uh, just in terms of why they're doing this photo op. Green Lantern feels they should be doing more stuff, but photo ops like this is what FDR says is what gives uh, the people at home and abroad sort of some encouragement. He references, of course, his famous speech, The Only Thing We Have to Fear is Fear Itself, which, of course, is where we get the title of the story. <clears throat> then the JSA is alerted uh, to an alarm via an air raid siren. Uh, Jay Garrick runs to check it out. Um, but before Hawkman and Hawk Girl should take to the air to see what else is going on. Jay's already back and says, we got to go now. Uh, they arrive on the scene in front of the Smithsonian, or at least in the general area, I'm assuming, um, to fight this eyeball with plant-like tentacle things. It's a, uh, it's a very old school, ancient one sort of monster, but it's smaller. It's maybe three times the height of a, of a, of a person, Uh, It's attacking cars and everybody. It attacks the JSA. It knocks everybody pretty quickly on their butts with, you know, they're not not knocked out, but they're basically paralyzed with fear. Alan's the only one left standing. Then he gets whammied via his ring when he tries to pour some energy onto this thing. And the vision that he sees is a world in which the Nazis win and take over the U.S., You know, Nazi flags draped over um, the Washington Monument, uh, or the the Lincoln Memorial, rather. Uh, Zeppelins in the sky, you know, a whole bunch of stuff. And the JSA in, like, an alternate reality sort of um, costumes. Like, instead of a lightning bolt, uh, Jay Garrick is wearing a costume that looks like a stylized SS. Um, So they all fight him. He realizes that very quickly that this is just a dream. This is this creature trying to get the better of him. He wakes up, he pours it on, and def- and knocks himself out as well. Uh, and then he comes to uh, to the entire situation being resolved. He doesn't know what happened, but he knows that everybody was struck down with fear. It's a defense mechanism uh, of this of this being that he uh, seems to believe is what what happened. I don't know what happened. It was scary, but it's over. We won. And all that's left is this weird little stone artifact thing. Looks kind of like a starfish. Um, Which I don't think is intentional, but it does. We cut to the 60s, one can assume. um, And with uh, an opening, another thing, where, in this case, Tom Kalmakou is handing a dollar bill to Hal Jordan because it's a little ritual Hal does. He borrows a dollar bill from Tom and gives it back when he lands safely. 
just, I guess, the idea being that I will arrive back safely to give this back to you. He takes a experimental plane up into the sky uh, before charging, uh, 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 after charging his ring, and puts it through its paces. But as he's out, he notices his mini submarine, and it launches a missile. It blows up the plane, but he becomes Green Lantern, swoops down, opens up the um, sub, and discovers a couple of Russians. This is, we're assuming, during the Cold War. Um, he uh, scares them with a construct of Kilowog, who doesn't look much like Kilowog <laughs> uh, in terms of size. He does, but the face is a little off, but one can assume it's embellished just for scare tactics. Uh, <laughs> he opens the crate that they were smuggling uh, that's supposed to they admit some old Nazi weapon. They don't even really know how it works. They just know that they were told to go grab it. So what Hal does is he opens the box, shines a light on it, and the light, uh, the construct light that he shines on it, it awakens the rock and it starts absorbing his energy. It comes alive. It blows up the sub. Hal gets himself and the Russians out of there just in time. Hal drops the Russians off at the Coast uh, City uh, Harbor dock, tells them to go to get the authorities, and then out of the ocean springs the monster. Godzilla size this time. Um, Hal tries to fight it. It's absorbing everything. It's breaking through his constructs. He calls the League in for backup, and they arrive in the form of Martian Manhunter, Black Canary, Barry Allen, Flash, and Aquaman. Uh, they all take it on, and they too fall pretty quickly to its powers. Hal gets knocked out much the way Alan did, and sees a world in which Coast City is destroyed by a nuclear holocaust. He sees Arthur, Diana, or Dinah, Barry, and everybody desiccated skeletons, basically. He sees a dead or dying uh, Jean Jones, who's struggling to communicate with Hal. But the things that John is saying is that this is all a dream. I'm trying to reach you. Don't believe anything you're seeing. This cause, causes Hal to go, you know, full-on willpower Green Lantern and pour it on. He wakes up to Barry waking him up. Doesn't know what happened. He says he broke free of it. He poured it on. And I don't know exactly what happened, but it... I guess everything's fine now. <laughs> um... And then Hal says, I don't ever want to face something like that. Dinah says, come on, Hal. I doubt Coast City has much to worry about with you around. <laughs> Foreshadowing. <laughs> well, he, well, but Hal wasn't really around for that, so might, so maybe her point is still valid. <laughs> I guess, I guess. <laughs> if Woody had gone straight to the police, this never would have happened. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this being has reverted back into its little rock form and is lying down at the bottom of the ocean. Then we switch to what supposedly is the modern day. Uh, of course, this comes out in, the, in 1999, so it's about as modern as you can get, I guess, uh, for this story. Uh, and there's a dollar bill taped to the window, or the mirror, behind the bar at Warriors. And we see our typical scene of John Stewart, Guy Gardner, Alan Scott, and Kyle Rayner playing cards at the bar, reminiscing on the good old days. Um... A lot of back and forth. I'm not going to go into it. We can go into it in our recaps. Um, but later on, Kyle's at home, and he's doing his you know daily jobs as an artist. He can't seem to – he's in a bit of a creative slump, 
So he goes down um, to the uh, the Met, right? That's the Met, right? What I really need. Oh. Art museums. Yeah, I come to the Met and surround myself with artwork. Okay. And he's looking at uh, Caravaggio's conversion of St. Paul, um, which I looked up. This is actually a pretty good rendering of it, um, at least in terms of the angles and the close-ups that you get of it. Um, it's pretty darn close to what the actual historical painted work looks like. Um, but anyways, while he's there, a priest, and I use that term very loosely, is in the museum railing about, you know, hey, he's coming, He's a, it's, it's not an artifact, it's a god from the stars, pay attention to it, the, it's time is here, it's unleashing, draws nigh. So Kyle works his way to the front of the line to see what the heck is going on. Because he's got his ring on and he's in proximity to it, it reaches out starts pulling energy from him. Meanwhile, over on the JLA satellite, um, no, actually, this is the watchtower on the moon station. Uh, Not the satellite. But anyways, everybody's waiting on Kyle to show up. Batman's like, he's late. Let's start start the damn meeting. Then they get an alert. They zoom in, and they see Kyle is fighting a giant monster. And we're talking, like, larger than a skyscraper, about the size of the entire darn city, uh, for the most part. Definitely bigger than Godzilla, the Godzilla size he was before. Um, Arthur, now in his Peter David era, uh, when he's got the long hair and the hook hand, Sort of recognizes this monster. It kind of jogs a memory loose, but he can't quite place it. Um, Kyle uh, is fighting it. He gets this man free, this priest who didn't really believe anything he was saying. He just wanted attention. Um, This thing busts out of the Met, fights Kyle, uh, knocks him out. Uh, (laughs) the, the, uh, The Justice League... Uh, uh, st- are they still on the watchtower on the moon, or are they are they on the ground? Yeah, they're still on the watchtower. Yeah. <laughs> they're still on the watchtower. They saw a bit mo- a big monster, but they need to evaluate it before they go down and help Kyle. <laughs> they're still pondering things. Uh, Martian Manhunter also recognizes it, and Arthur. That's all it takes for Arthur to go. Yeah, <laughs> I knew I recognized that thing. It's we fought it before. It's different though. So. This thing goes, uh, shoots some energy down at Kyle, and he sees some failures in his life. Uh, Donna walking away from a major force, cramming Alex's dead body into the fridge. The Justice League laughing at a parallax, not being worthy of uh, Ganthet's uh, gift of the ring, so on and so forth. Alan shows up, says, hey, I fought this thing before. You need to take it out. Uh, you need to just kind of pour on all your energy, so on and so forth. Uh, we can't risk it happening, it happening again. Kyle tries to fight it head on, doesn't work out very well. Alan tries to help him, doesn't work out very well. So he says, uh, Kyle says, uh, Alan, the creature hasn't attacked unless it's been provoked, right? I still think our best shot might be to let it do what it's trying to do, maybe even help it. Alan disagrees. This is when the league finally decides to get up off their butts and show up. <clears throat> They tell him, uh, 
Only the three of us were able to make the trip trip unaided, so this is Superman, Wonder Woman, and Martian Manhunter on the scene. Kyle says he's got a handle on what needs to be done. Uh, Superman stops uh, Wonder Woman, who says, you know, who's going to stay, uh, stop him from taking it on by himself, but Superman stops her and says he's earned at least that much. Kyle flies up to the monster and gives it everything he has, and not in terms of trying to fight it, but in terms of willingly giving him the this being as much energy as he can. It gets bigger and bigger and brighter and brighter. Um, everybody thinks he's, what's he doing? Greenland is going to kill us all. Superman's like, I think he failed us. Kyle's, uh, Alan's like, oh no, Kyle. Then big explosion, and then later on, everything's fine. And they're out in space, uh, or at least in the atmosphere. And Kyle is holding a little blue orb in the palm of his hand, which he states is this creature. Basically, it was like a caterpillar that needed to absorb energy and nutrition to evolve into its next stage of evolution. It was it, it, it needed help to get to this point. It wasn't trying to hurt anybody. This is what it needed to do. So... Um, Wonder Woman's like, how did you know that? And he's like, what made you leap, uh, make this leap? He's like, it wasn't a leap of logic. It was a leap of faith in myself. I had to trust in what, what I believed would happen and not be afraid of it. And then he turns it loose. It floats out into the sky. Kyle's like, I don't know what – I'd love to know what became of it. Uh, I'd love to know what it was in the first place and what do you think. He's talking to Alan. Um, and Alan says – what I think is there's more in the wide universe than we'll ever know. Whatever it was, it came to Earth lo- from the stars long ago. And it wanted, uh, it waited for the power to set it free so it could eventually return to the stars. It's a life form beyond our understanding, Kyle. But you were the only one who didn't see it as a monster. You weren't scared. Kyle says, yes, I was scared. I just managed to overcome my own fears. That's what some, that's, what's that thing some president said? The only thing you have to fear is fear itself. Sounds right to me. Because I've only heard of one guy who was fearless, and it shows that <clears throat> Alan and Kyle are standing in, uh, I guess, the gardens of what used to be Coast City next to the statue of Hal Jordan. And that is the story. Good, everybody. I tried to be as brief as possible. I didn't want to get too bogged down in the details of it. Uh, it is pretty... Self-explanatory for the most part. There's not a lot of dissection necessary, I guess. But <clears throat> no. Cause what did you think? Because everything that everything that happens pretty much is cyclical to the very end. I mean, everything that happens, we just see the same thing happening to all three Green Lanterns. It's just that Kyle takes it to a different level. Uh, I always like this. I always like this this uh, story. Not. I mean, there are things about it that are question that are I don't know if questionable is the right word, but you do, you do scratch your head about it a few th- about a few things I think. But in general terms, I like the idea that you had a generational story, multi generational story, with Alan and Kyle and and Hal. So the idea of them all facing all facing a different the same villain, they kind of def- I mean Alan and Hal kind of did defeat it the same way, slight variations, but I. So it would have been maybe a cooler to have a slightly different variation of, of how Hal beat him, just so you you know. But I did, and I I've always liked the painted style, 
of these graphic novels. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, there are lots of things in this, with the, the specific look of characters in this graphic novel. There are a lot of things that make me want to bang my head against the wall. But I do. But I, I've always been a fan of that particular, particular styles. But I mean, some character. I mean, some characters look. I mean, I don't think Hal gets butchered as 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 much as some of the some others do. I mean, other than you know, kind of taking the Alan Ro- the Alex Ross kind of approach of not showing, of kind of like seeing his eyes and not having them whited out in his mask. That I that sometimes that's still a little disconcerting. But for the most part, Hal looks like Hal. I think Tom doesn't really look like Tom. Carol definitely does. Carol looks like this weird amalgam of Kim Kardashian and uh, Maya Rudolph, <laughs> which is not a great combination. <laughs> so this is definitely not a you know this is not your traditional looking Carol whatsoever. Just like Guy Gardner looks nothing like Guy Gardner. Uh, but not that I think you said you got this when it came out. Yep. Yep. Uh, I've had this hardcover ever since it came out. Still smells new, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, I actually, I actually never read it until this year, as a matter of fact. Um, I uh, back towards the beginning of this year in March, May, something like that. Uh, no, March. Yeah, uh, March. I went to Portland uh, or thereabouts to visit my mom uh, and my sister and brother-in-law who were living there at the time, and my stepfather. <clears throat> But uh, anyways, uh, Portland, as some of you are aware, has a, a very popular bookstore called Powell's City of Books. I mean, it's massive. Uh, anybody who's been there knows it's like it's like warehouse size in terms of length and width. But uh, it's also like four floors. <laughs> they give you they have a bunch of maps at every entrance point so you can figure out how to get where you need to go. Um, but anyways, I was shopping there and I saw this and I we've, we've been planning to do this for a long time. Um uh, it's just a matter of when we would get around to it. And I just happened to see this sitting among the stacks of the Green Lantern-related graphic novels. So I pull it off the shelf, and it's it's with the used stuff. And uh, it's like, it's it's maybe seven bucks, something like that. It's like half price. And I'm like, all right, cool. It's in fairly decent condition for, you know, being, being this, this cheap. So I open it up, and I'll see the very first page... In silver sharpie, it says "Best wishes, Ron Mars." <laughs> so, not only had I never read it, and not only was I buying it for half price because we were going to be reviewing it, I'm like, "All right, well, what better time to buy it than now?" <laughs> I decide to buy it already before even opening it, and then I open it, and it's a signed Ron Mars copy. <laughs> so, I thought that was pretty interesting. What had happened, but yeah, it was, this was the first time I'd uh, I'd ever read it, and I I found it pretty interesting too. I will say I thought the monster was weird, but only at the beginning, during the Alan story. I thought it looked completely out of place. I thought it looked hokey, you know, whatever you want to say. Um, that obviously changes when you realize it's you know it's evolving, um, but. So it's more of like a hindsight 2020 when you go back and read it for multiple times. But the first time I read it, when I saw that monster, the way it appears in the Allen's era for the first time, I thought it looks kind of weird and hokey. <laughs> in the beginning, it looked like something out of either the Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits with the big eye, you know, like yeah. a crawling eye or something. This big, you know, this big eyeball with just has tentacles attached to it, and so yeah, it. it I mean, based on that era, it wasn't. 
know, it wasn't so bad. I mean, maybe it would have been, in a way, maybe it would have been more appropriate if the first story was like in the 50s as opposed to the 40s, since the 50s is kind of like your sci-fi time. But, I don't know, I, yeah, the monster design is not, it isn't anything super, super special. I, but I, I, that didn't take away my enjoyment of the story, not saying it did for you either, but it, I, but I think that's a valid point, that it, it doesn't have a, does not have a unique look to it. Yeah. Uh, one thing we wanted to throw in, I, I, we're not going to read it everything, uh, you know, like a, from start to finish all the way through. Um, but I was on Twitter today, um, as I usually am. Uh, but instead of asking listeners for feedback on this story, what I did was I actually tweeted Ron Mars. He's actually very, very active on Twitter. Um, and I just asked him flat out. I was like, hey, we're going to be covering this tonight. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions here on Twitter uh, so we can kind of get some of your thoughts? And he responded. Uh, enough to where when I copied and pasted uh, all the responses back and forth, it covered about a page and a half. Um, so we're not going to read them all back to back, but when we refer to certain things as we review the story, uh, I'll just kind of insert some of Mark's thoughts. So, I mean, not Mark's, uh, Ron's. Yeah, no one gives a shit about mine. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm certainly kidding, not going to inject kidding. your thoughts because I don't know them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go take a leak. Carry on, Chad. <laughs> so, uh, since we already kind of talked a bit about the art, I asked him what the origin of this story was. Uh, he said that DC found the artist, uh, Brad Parker, or that Brad found them. He said Editorial was looking for a project for Brad to paint. Um, so, what they did was they approached Ron and showed him Brad's work. And then asked if he could come up with a Green Lantern story for a hardcover original graphic novel. So he came up with the idea of a story that involved Alan, Hal, and Kyle facing the same foe in different eras. Which I responded with that it almost sounded like the old Marvel style where art comes before story. But in this case, it even wasn't really in that case because the way Marvel style worked is they did the entire story and then all the writer did was add words. Whereas, in this case, they just wanted to build a project around an artist. There were no existing pages of material prior to Ron writing a script. Um, one thing I noticed is we, we did mention the, <clears throat> the monster was – what I tried to do is I tried to do a little bit of research for this. I looked the this uh, spell that the Nazis chanting at the beginning. I tried to find a translation for it, and I didn't try super hard, um, but I did try uh, with several different words and such. I didn't find much. However, one of the first words he says is Sogoth, S O G G O T H. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but when I googled that word, it came up with links to the Legend of Cthulhu. Uh, so I asked. Um, Ron, if this monster was inspired by Cthulhu, uh, and he says, yeah, there was definitely a Cthulhu inspiration. If you're going to do monsters from other dimensions, that's the blueprint. Which, again, I thought the monster was kind of weird towards the beginning. I, I definitely see what you're saying in terms of like the older sci-fi TV shows and stuff like that. My particular favorite iteration of it was in the middle with Hal, but I'm partial to Godzilla. <laughs> <laughs> Which is basic. <laughs> what, 
what was this man i can't remember this the theme song uh up from the depths oh from the cartoon <laughs> yeah from the old school and Gazuki. <laughs> because that's what those three panels reminded me of when it like the water's bubbling <laughs> and then this monster slowly rises out of it and even if you look at the monster up until about a th- the last third of the top of his body the rest of it looks sort of Godzilla like doesn't yeah, it yeah it does yeah, especially yeah, you, you, and and it's kind of cool you know that is the one the one real battle is taking place basically the near the coat you know in the water not because it's a coast city so it makes sense that that's where a lot of you know that's where it's basically taking place so but i also like i do like the fact that that follows the pattern of basically this taking place on all different cities too there was a city that in a way even though you would think you would associate gotham right with allen more than washington dc but based on the time frame that they're doing this it would kind of makes a little more sense why he would get washington dc but you have, but you also have cities that basically you think of with the other two characters anywhere. You think of Coast City with Hal, and you think of New York with Kyle. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Again, I, I did like the monster. I thought it was, I thought it was interesting that it got to like floaty cosmic city size towards the end there, which almost. The reason I say it almost looks like a starfish in those rock was was by design. It almost kind of, remi- kind of reminded me of those uh, issues where Starro shows up, and he's not like just a large monster, but he's like floating over the city, dropping little starlings on people's faces, type of monster. Right. Yeah. You know, there, there were issues where Starro was just like a large creature, and then issues where Starro's like floating over a city, and he's just massive, dropping little starfish on people's faces and controlling them from there. The latter is what that reminded me of. Um, uh, one of the things I did notice is is another con- uh, like continuing theme across each of these stories, and I'm sure you picked up on it too. The the Flash, yes, being involved in that. We've got Alan and Jay, we've got Hal and Barry, and we've got Kyle and Wally. Kyle and Wally, to a lesser extent, I feel, although yeah. there's a bit of a dynamic there when like. Wally's the one saying, "I bet he's late because he's doing blah 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 blah." Like yeah, I was gonna you, say, it's very clear they have a, deni- a dynamic. Yeah, I was going to say, Wally is almost taking like the Simon Baz to Guy Gardner relationship, and, and even though you know these guys, you know these guys are actually have a closeness to him if you read the, if you read the books in that era. But he he is just again using our magic word lately, like in a vacuum, he just comes across as kind of being. Ah. You know, you kind of know he's doing it tongue in cheek, but he's like, but he really is kind of like ragging a lot on Kyle. Like, maybe we should let him handle this one on his own. <laughs> I, I I do like the di- dynamic. I've always liked Flash and GL uh, as much as I like GLGA. Obviously, of the two, and I said this to to Ron on Twitter because I, I did mention to him about the the Flash GL team up. Um, I just said, you know, was it? Did you do that because it's kind of just the fact of the the eras in which you're telling these stories that these two are going to have a relationship? Or do you just have a love for that dynamic? He says both really. I love the friendship dynamic across eras and characters. Flash GL is, for me, the DC version of Captain America and Iron Man. And um, I told him basically what I've thought for years. As much as I love like GLGA, the Flash and Green Lantern are a better team than 
Hal and Ollie are. I just feel like the, the, the GLGA stuff, they're really good friends, but even outside of the Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams stuff, it definitely happened more in that series and then has continued on more since that series. But it's always seems like Hal and Ollie are those buddies who are at their throat at each other's throats, but somehow can come together when something needs to be done and somehow magically get it done. Whereas Hal and Barry or really any GL and any flash are just like really good friends who occasionally disagree about methodology but when it, when the going gets tough, I mean, they just like they they suit up and get the job done, as opposed to bickering while they're fighting. Agreed. Yeah, I really like that too. I'm you know it got me thinking. Like I'm not sure which which GL Flash dynamic I like more. Do I like Alan and Jay more than I like Hal and Barry or Wally and Kyle? Because they I feel like they all have different relationships. I think that. I mean, it's it's interesting. They're all almost brothers. They're right. all almost brothers to each other. But I feel like there's different brotherly dynamics with each. I think you're right, but it's hard to necessarily dissect to break to to. I think you're right, but off the top of my head, it's hard to break it down necessarily to build the case why each dynamic is is 100% unique. Uh. I mean, Wally's is a little different with Kyle because Wally was because Wally was absolutely the veteran of the two. Oh, for sure. So that so that so that that onto itself is a little unique because of the fact that the Flash is clearly being, even though they're contemporaries, the fact that he still is in much more in a mentor role of if someone's going to be taking that role. So, and the fact oh yeah, like like Big Brother, Little Brother yeah. instead of just yeah, yeah. That was interesting. Uh, one thing I noticed there, uh, because of the art styles, there's not a lot of Easter eggs because obviously the art is focused more on the stylization. But I did notice the if you're going to put Easter eggs in the background of something, it's got to be Warriors, right? Yes. <laughs> uh, first of all, there's a bunch of stuff on the wall in the opening scene. Outside of the mirror thing, which I'll mention here in a minute, did you notice or recognize any of that stuff, obviously, besides, like, Sinestro or Tomar Ray? Uh, let me go back over it real quick. Um, it's, it's not like a, a, a quiz question. I legitimately don't know what some of that stuff is. No, I don't... No, I don't, I don't think there's that much that... that grabbed me as in like I really knew what it was besides all the obvious stuff. I do like the fact that the action figures are kind of like in that and the uh, style of the oh god what, what what style figures are those? The the uh, superpowers? Yes, the superpowers. Thank you. Yes, I find that Tomar and Sinestro are in the the same you know the same uh, pose and the same uh, figure uh, sculpt and mold from uh, the superpowers. Yeah, I feel like that thing to the right of Sinestro, between Sinestro and that power battery, is supposed to be something very, like, on the nose, but I don't recognize it. Yeah, and underneath it almost looks like kryptonite, though. I'm not sure why it would be kryptonite. Oh, no, no, no. Not not to no, no, our I, right, but no, Sinestro's right. Yeah, I know what you meant. You meant the thing up to the top. I'm just looking below it and trying to... And... 
Oh no 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 not not the cylinder thing. The the chest plate thing. Oh, to right. Sinestro's right. Oh, I got you. That's right. I got yeah, you. Yeah yeah. Or left. Yes. Yeah yeah. Yeah, I have no idea what that is. Yeah. Um. The only thing I could think of that Jewel would be, like you said, is kryptonite. But why would they have kryptonite there? Maybe it's supposed to be like raw material for the batteries or something like that. Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, but the main thing I wanted to point out is on this mirror where they have pasted uh, or taped this dollar bill. They've got like a JLA membership card and a Warriors Lounge membership pass or whatever. But on there is underneath the dollar bill, it's it's a Warriors Warrior Lounge Bar tab. For $107.56 with zero amount paid for a Tommy Monahan. Tommy Monahan in the DC universe is the secret identity, or not so secret identity, of DC Comics Hitman. <laughs> Which is one of those 90s DC concepts <laughs> that not a ton of people remember but is slightly more popular than some of the other 90s DC comic <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, I tried to find anything about this. I even asked Ron about it, and, and he basically said, I honestly don't remember. If it, I asked him, was it you or was it Brad <laughs> who, who tossed that in? And he's like, I, I don't remember, probably. <laughs> so... Even Ron, even Ron doesn't know why that Hitman reference is, that, is in there because it's the only, like, obvious Easter egg in this whole thing. I mean, there are, like, subtle shout-outs. Like, they're obviously, like, foreshadowing things like Coast City. And then, you know, you have Kyle's flashback to the things of that he's afraid of, like, his history with Donna and Alex. But uh, we're talking, like, a subtle Easter egg. This is, like, the only real one here. And of all people, it's Hitman. <laughs> That is true. That, that is rather obscure, to say the least. There was a Hitman series, because I was on Comixology or something, and I was trying to find a reference, because I was like Googling. I was like, Tommy Monaghan, Hitman, Guy Gardner, or Hitman Warriors, or like Hitman Green Lantern, like anything I could find. There was a Hitman series, like mini-series, where it was almost like he was like touring the DC universe, where there was like pop-ups of other characters. You know how that um, Green Lantern Heroes Quest story was, where it was like one issue was him and Shazam, and one issue him and Wonder Woman, and Batman, and so on and so forth. Uh, <clears throat> same type of thing. And in issue three of this, it shows Hitman and Kyle Rayner in costume, at a bar, sitting down, and Kyle Rayner holding a bill with a shocked look on his face. So I was really curious, like, if anything I found is a reference to this particular tab, I wonder if it has to do with that comic. And I think, like, it was, like, Hitman in the DC Universe or, or, or something like that, um... But it, I, I'll, I'll look it up. But it, it was it was really obscure because when I looked at it, I was like, "All right, they veer like this this detail detail in this comic is lacking because it's a painted style." 
So when you have something in text in very small print, but you can still very clearly read the name, the name has to mean something. So I had to look it up. I was like, all things. <laughs> Hitman? <laughs> what? Why? <laughs> and I had to ask, and he just, he didn't say, he, he doesn't know. So I don't know what the heck's going on uh, or why it was a thing, but uh, evidently they needed to reference <laughs> Hitman <laughs> for some stupid reason. You're welcome, America. <laughs> uh uh, what else about this series did you uh, did you uh, enjoy? Well, I think Kyle looks the best of the three of them. <laughs> In terms of artistically? Yes, I don't mean I don't mean necessarily when he's not when he's just being Kyle, but I mean his actual Green Lantern outfit. I think that's the one that looks the closest to what we're used to. stylized wise or stylistically wise. I think that looks the closest to what we're used to seeing in you know the normal monthlies and most of the versions we've seen. So I did like that. Uh, one thing that was weird, I, that page on uh, page was that 71 when uh, when Superman's going, I think he failed us. That uh, it, that's an interesting little three panels there, because you have Michael Jackson looking like Superman, and you got a David David the Company looking like Alan Scott. Missy, <laughs> <laughs> I gotta pull that out here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, I can yeah, you see can that. See, you can see them both. I mean, uh, Superman... Alan looks, almost looks like Jamie. Jamie Lannister. Yeah, he, he kind of does, but the, I, think it's, I think it's the eyes. I think something about the eyes and the lips make me think of David, even though the hair color is obviously off, but it makes me look think of David David Duchovny first. Uh, the thing I liked from a storytelling point of view in this, and this might shock some people, is that what's really good about this story is this is actually a rare story when you really think about it in which Kyle actually truly ends up believing in himself and he, and, he, and he succeeds. That he doesn't doubt himself, he doesn't get himself into trouble, is that he's able to overcome his doubts and his and he's actually he just, he wills himself to overcome his, his fears and everything else and he doesn't doubt himself, it doesn't hold him back and, he is, and because it doesn't hold him back, he's actually able to do something, though it, you could argue they were taking different approaches, but still you can make the case that this is a, an, also a rare moment when he's able to do something that, Green, that both Alan Scott and Hal Jordan were, un, were unable to do all as Green Lanterns. So I thought that was I thought so. I think that's that kind of stands out to me from a just besides the uh, the whole cyclical nature and the multi generational aspects in this story. Plus, I'm also I would like to, I, I would like to see what happened to this thing again. I like to see it come back. This creature. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a hint, uh, Robert Venditti. Instead of the, instead of the new the new gods coming back, how about doing giving us giving us this thing? <laughs> you know what I think actually is uh, as I was reading it, I was like, wouldn't it be interesting if this thing was tied into? And I bet you think I, I bet you can think of where I'm going with it. After it evolves, what does it remind you of? It's kind of vague. Uh, I know you're trying to be vague, or I'm just thick tonight. Uh, give me a hint, at least. A certain lantern core. <laughs> oh, blue? Yeah. Even, even, I mean, because Kyle says, he goes, it wasn't a leap of logic, it was a leap of faith. And then he turns it loose to the stars. Like, I mean, come on. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you could connect the dots. Of course, of course they could go. Let's let's go retroactive and then throw another panel where it flies over Ganthet's head. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty. That's nice. Let me go check that out. Uh, by the way, I found it. it it's it's called uh, it's called Hitman Local Heroes, and I just sit marked the cover of, of that issue. Like, <laughs> That's a bad-looking Kyle, too. <laughs> Which is uh, written by uh, Garth Ennis, by the way, because I, I believe Garth Ennis created Hitman, actually, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, but, yeah, um, I don't know what else to say about it. Again, it's one of those stories where everything's on the page. There's there's not a lot to, like, you know, what did he mean when he said this? What does he – it's, it's a one-and-done. It's 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 a original graphic novel – with its own story, uh, even even the motivation for like the title, fear itself, it's it's very clear where that inspiration comes from, uh, and it's not like Ron Mars is pulling some uh, DC like retconning type of uh, a story. He's just using a, an out and out interdimensional monster. It, it, even the villain is very, which not really even a villain, is very simple, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just not – there's nothing to dissect there. Um, one of the things I, I asked uh, Ron, I asked him uh, if, if – like how he liked doing the projects, you know, if he had any fun stories about the process that he wanted to share. Uh, he said, I was really happy to have a hardcover. I happened to be in the D.C. offices when they got a couple of the pre-press copies, so they gave me one of them to take home. I was very happy. I was a very happy camper looking through it on the train back home. Now, Mark, you said you have the hard copy version of this? Yes, I do. Does it have any content that maybe the soft cover doesn't, like a foreword or anything like that? Um, let's see. Or is it just like the title page with the credits and then like the uh, dedications in the rear? Well, I have the... In- and the inside flap, I'm a, I have History of the Rings of Power. Do you have that? I don't have any of that. All right, so let me let me just let wait. Me... Well, on the back it says Alan Scott, a hero forged under the fearsome specter of the Last War. All of that is that what you're referring to? No, my back my back cover has nothing to fear but, and then it goes to the 1940s, the Cold War, the time is now. So you yeah. Have, you don't have that either. I don't have that. I have some. So mine says. Three heroes from three eras. Alan Scott, a hero forged under the fearsome specter of the last world war. Alan was the first of Earth's Green Lanterns. Hal Jordan, a dauntless Cold War test pilot. Hal assumed the mantle of Green Lantern from a dying alien and perhaps became perhaps the greatest in a long line of Emerald Gladiators. Kyle Rayner, granted the power of the ring by the last of the Guardians. Kyle struggles to hold in check his own personal demons as he faces the dangers of the modern world. Now each must face an ancient creature of unimaginable power with the ability to destroy its enemies by tapping into their own deepest dread, can these three heroes survive against such a beast, or will they succumb to fear itself? All right, so let me read the back. Let me actually read the back flap on this before I go into the history of the Rings of Power, because that's less interesting but still cool just because it's... So the back the back cover itself says, Nothing to fear but, and of course all this other stuff I'm about to re- read is in between where it finishes the sentence, Fear Itself. Uh, the 1940s, Alan Scott was Earth's first Green Lantern, and fear had a distinct face, that of a madman bent on conquering the world. 
Alan was the first to encounter the creature and would have to confront his greatest fear to defeat it, but it wasn't over. The Cold War. Fear wasn't as obvious, but always present, that of nuclear devastation. Test pilot Hal Jordan was the best of the Green Lantern Corps. How would, Hal would meet the resurrected creature and brave his own undeniable fear, but it didn't end here. The time is now. Kyle Rayner is the last Green Lantern. Today, fear is even less clear. It's deeper, more personal, and Kyle's horror may be the greatest of all. So that was the back cover. And then the history of the Rings of Power just goes through the three. Uh, the legacy of the Green Lantern began in 1940 when construction engineer Alan Scott was saved from a train wreck thanks to a mysterious lantern. A voice from the lantern told Alan Scott to fashion a ring from its metal. He used the ring's incredible power to fight for justice. And there's a picture of Alan Scott's ring and Alan. Uh, years later, Abin Sur, an alien member of a corps of intergalactic peacekeepers, the Green Lanterns, crashed on Earth. As he lay dying, he instructed his power ring to seek out someone honest and fearless. The ring found test pilot Hal Jordan, who went on to become the greatest of the corps. Uh, when his hometown of Coast City was mercilessly destroyed, Hal Jordan turned against the Guardians, founders of the Green Lantern Corps. The last Guardian bestowed the remaining power ring upon Kyle Rayner, a freelance artist who carries on the legacy to this day. Three men with three rings of power, one foe that cannot be defeated unless they face their greatest fears. And that was the inside hmm. flap. Pretty cool. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, is is it is it just a really nice quality? Because uh, one of the things my my copy's doing is that thing a lot of soft covers do when they're really thin and you read them, where the interior pages stick together, but the ex the the exterior cover on the front and the back kind of like flare out. Yeah, the hardcover mm -hmm. I don't have any I don't have any problems like that, so that's cool. Uh, does is does is it just a hardcover? Or does it have a dust jacket? No, yeah, it has a dust jacket. The stuff I the stuff I was reading was from the dust jacket. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Cool. Uh, one of the things I, I forgot to mention, I asked uh, Ron Mars what his favorite segment was because he got to do all three. And since he wrote the Kyle Rayner run, he's also had chances within his own series to write both Hal and Alan. Uh, so w when he did this particular story, was there any particular favorite he had? And he said, probably the Allen segment, I really like writing period stuff, so the chance to do a World War II-era sequence was great. So, that was that. It, it was, it, that's basically everything he had to say. It was, it was, it was nice to have him, uh, him respond uh, on Twitter. I was, I was actually surprised, because he is on Twitter quite a lot, but... He doesn't usually respond to a whole bunch of stuff uh, from fans in that regard, um, but it was really nice of him to take the time out to do that. I know that Laurel, one of our listeners, was kind of paying attention to that whole conversation as it was happening, and she was pretty grateful for that, too, uh, that he took the time out to do that. So I asked uh, Ron if there's anything that he has coming up uh, that he might want us to tell listeners about, uh, and just as a thank you for, for taking the time out to answer some of my questions. Um, he's actually got a series coming up from, um, I believe it's ID, uh, uh, IDW. No, uh, I'm, I'm, um, I'm, 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 I'm not, I'm the yeah, Omnius press. Omnius. Yeah. Ominous. Press. Uh, I'm, we're, we're both on crack tonight. Ominous press. <laughs> yeah. Um, Long day. <laughs> yes. It, uh, it's called Dread Gods, uh, and he. I'll, I'll, I'll include the link in the show notes on our website. Links don't really show up very well on like iTunes descriptions, guys. 
So uh, if you go to lanterncast.com and uh, click on the link for this episode, episode 290, uh, you'll see the link to the sci-fi article, uh, the sci-fi wire website uh, article talking about the Dread God series with a couple of preview pages. Um, the official uh, synopsis of this says uh, it launches uh, with the first of three limited series set in a science fiction slash fantasy universe of epic heroes and insidious villains in Dread Gods. Gods in a fantasy world discover discover they're actually monsters in a post-apocalyptic landscape. Acclaimed, acclaimed creators Ron Mars and Tom Rainey join with art master Bart Sears to usher in an adventure like no other. Includes a backup tale by Bart Sears and a wealth of added content. It's actually interesting. Uh, it's going to have some uh, variant covers too by both Kevin uh, or Kenneth Rockefeller, who's a one of the uh, modern artists. Uh, but also living legend Neil Adams is going to be doing some variant covers for it. Uh, I read through the preview pages, and I promise I'm not just being like super ad <laughs> advertisement and, and everything. They actually, it looks like a pretty cool series. Uh, so I would definitely recommend it. And plus, guys, it's a mini series from an independent publisher. So if you're not liking what the big two are doing and want to spend your money on comics, but not the big two stuff, you guys like Ron Mars probably. So give that a shot. <clears throat> nice plug and, and well deserved <laughs> yeah so thanks Ron for taking the time out I tried to find Brad Parker uh, online but I couldn't really find uh, any good links for him uh, so that I could ask him some questions because especially when Ron told me it was more like you know uh, DC wanted to build a project around his art I feel like as d- don't get me wrong we it's, it's uh, Ron obviously came up with the story um, but I feel like as much as Ron contributed to this story, I feel like in this particular original graphic novel's case, this story, I mean, even obviously in origin itself, was more about the art than it was the story. Would that be fair, you think? I think so. I, I think so. And, and based on what we what he said during our interview when we, when we interviewed him, that I don't think he would be upset by that since he... He more than maybe many writers acknowledge how you know that it is the visual medium probably more than anything else. So that the that it's oh yeah, you're referring to our actual like when we spoke. Yes, with our him. real interview, our actually episode interview with him, that he made it clear that you know it's kind of a it is a visual medium you know so so he knows that the art kind of from the art kind of drives it at least in the eye of, of the court of public opinion more you know more than the writing a lot of times. So I think I don't think he would be. I don't think he would be offended by that, and I think because of the uniqueness of the style of, of this of the art in this graphic novel, that's why the story it's the story is interesting. And again, I like the fact that you have the Kyle, you know, the, the Kyle being able to overcome stuff, which is not really in Kyle's, you know, his his real, not in his repertoire all that often. That that's how it goes. So I did like that, but I think it, I think the art, <clears throat> the art is what stands out to me in, about this, and I think that's what's most memorable about the story overall. Gotcha. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I, I'm i not the biggest fan of the art, because there, there are a couple of places where I think it looks weird, or po- like the poses are slightly off, or whatever, but I find it interesting that I like the art as much as I do, because they went with this painted style, but when you think painted styles, you tend to think of like Alex Ross and stuff like that, and a lot of these painted style comics are hyper realistic. 
in terms of trying to make them look like people like, like I said, Alex Ross, you get that kind of art where they're trying to make the faces look like people you've seen before. Um, and the bodies and the costumes look, I mean, they're, when you see, uh, 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 an Alex Ross, like Batman, it's very clear he's wearing a cloth suit. Like they, they're all very old school looking. Uh, but they're all hyper-realistic in the faces, the poses, so on and so forth. In this case, I thought it was odd because this is like, this is a painted comic book style art. Like it's 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 like if like uh, someone took the simplicity of a Bruce Tim style design, but made it slightly more realistic and painted instead of hard lines. Because there's not a ton of detail on these faces. It's there, but it's not it's not as in-depth as any other really painted style in comics that I've come across. Does that make sense? No, it, it makes sense. <clears throat> yeah, so, I, you know, it'd be interesting. I, I don't think I've ever seen Brad Parker's work anywhere else. And if Brad... if if DC wanted to build a project around him in the late '90s, I mean, he had to have been a, a bigger artist, right? Yeah, you the same way like somebody would be like, "Oh, hey, this Ivan Hayes or this Ethan Van Skyver guy is really freaking awesome. We should get him to do a project for us." So I wonder what Brad Parker's credentials are. Hmm. Now, when I when I saw that that for, actually the. Even in the beginning, when you're kind of getting almost like a you, when they're at the, when they're at the Smithsonian, when you kind of think that hey, is, didn't we see this guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark? No. <laughs> I was just about to say, did you did you get an Indiana Jones feel off of that? Yeah, and, and I can't, and especially the dude with the glass. He reminds yes. me of what's his name? He puts on his robe and does the chants at the yeah, end or whatever. Yeah, 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 yep. Yeah. Uh, but right, but so you kind of get. That feel when you're seeing that, but when they, when you get to the, the the picture of the of the J the Justice Society with with Roosevelt, it just for some reason all I could think of when I saw that picture was Watchmen, especially <laughs> the movie, you know, especially the movie version. It's like I just for some reason that's that's what it kind of reminded me of, and that's where the painted style kind of to me where it kind of took it. Uh, I thought it was funny though, in a way it's appropriate because it's one of those things that you they never really. T- they never really try to give you an explanation for this, though. It cries out for one, the fact that, you know, Carol walks in there and Tom's like, oh, you got to stash the battery, boss, even though he, he's still got the friggin' Green Lantern ring on his hand. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and he's, just holding the, and he's just holding the battery behind his back until Tom takes it. Then, he's, then, he, then his hand's out in front with the ring on. <laughs> you know what that scene reminds me of? What? The movie? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Kyle's late to test fly a plane. Carol Ow. walks into Ow. the rocker. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How's how's they to test? It's, it's been a long day. <laughs> I, 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 we're both in the same boat. How's <laughs> uh, late to test fly a plane? Carol walks into the lo- locker room, asks him what the hell he thinks he's doing. You're late. <laughs> Hal makes some BS excuse and says, "All right, come on, let's get out there and play some plates." <laughs> I mean, that's outside of Tom's involvement in this scene in the comic. It's it's almost basically the same scene. <laughs> Just without Ryan Reynolds' snarkiness. <laughs> but, I mean, still, there's a little bit of, like, all right, fine, Carol, let's go, <laughs> kind of stuff on Kyle. Like, you're, I mean, on, on Hal, like, you're you're the one slowing us up now. Come on, let's go. 
And this, uh, and this version of Carol Ferris looks just about like Carol Ferris as much as uh, Blake Lively did. <laughs> Even though Blake Lively was more attractive than this kid than this, than this Carol. Um, for those of you out there who want to pick up this comic, uh, it was obviously originally released in the late 90s. But DC Comics, I think, if I'm reading this right, was it 2011 that they did this? Yeah, April 1st, 2011. Um DC Comics did a DC Comics Presents series. Do you guys remember it just if, if you've been picking up comics for a few years now, a couple years ago, or again, around the 2011 mark, DC Comics started doing uh, reprints of some of their stories in what they called 100-page spectaculars. This comic, Green Lantern Fear itself, was reprinted in a 2011 one-shot issue of a DC Comics Presents 100-page spectacular. So, if I remember right, those issues were like seven, eight bucks. So, I wouldn't be surprised if, even if you can't find the original graphic novel, which I don't think it's hard to find. It's been several years, obviously. But I don't think it's hard to find it still. It wasn't that popular. Um, I'm pretty sure I've seen it on several shelves before. But even if you can't, it was reprinted in a single one-shot issue as recently as 2011. So I'm pretty sure you guys can find it in some form or another. Um, I'm wondering if maybe the 100-page spectacular was made available in Comixology, for those of you who are doing the digital thing. It could be. I know the hard, the hard copy is supposedly still available on uh, Amazon. Oh, that's interesting. Cheaper than mine, but still not super cheap. And the, pa- the paperback versions, now you're starting to get like secondhand places. But but in theory, if you can find one, it's cheaper than uh, even probably what you paid for. Oh yeah, I paid like seven bucks, which is the same price as I guess the the one shot hundred page spectacular. So your co- so your cover has the three ring hands in the on the cover. Yes. Yes. Mhm. Yeah. The hard the hard copy had Kyle's ring on the cover. Yeah. <clears throat> so you win. You win on the cover front. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Anything else you want to say about this one? Um. Let me just make sure. I don't want to forget something. Uh. It was kind of nice to have the reference to Hal at the end. Throwing. I mean, even we know Hal was in the book, but kind of having a, again a nice little positive moment with Hal at the end uh, with Alan and. Kyle. Um, I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that that stood out in this that we that we didn't discuss. I like the Radu coffee mug. That was cool. Oh yeah, there was a Radu. Kyle's at his art table. You can see his battery, which has its distinctive design there. Yep. So. Yeah, a lot of the stuff. A lot of the stuff with Kyle, in a way, was a little more detailed, and I kind of I kind of did like that. Uh, so, but it was yeah. It's 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 a it's a cool story, and again, it's it, because of the fact that it covers Alan, Kyle, and uh, and Hal that I think it that I think that's a nice touch because you don't always get a, a lot of that, and together in one in one story again without time travel or anything like that. So I think so. I like it. I think. I, I from time to time I go back and I reread that story. Even every like every year or so, maybe I'll go back and I reread that one too. So 
And when we do uh, Legacy, The Last Will and Testament of Hal Jordan, I, I kind of reread that one too, which will balance out because I'll take, I'll review that one. Like you review this one, but yeah, that's. Well, there you go, guys. In the future, we will be reviewing Legacy. So if you don't have Legacy, The Last Will and Testament of Hal Jordan, the Tom Kalmaku OGN original graphic novel, then uh, start hunting it down. As much as some people hate that thing, which I certainly do not, at least at least the story based on how it all how it resolves itself actually has a lot of has some serious ties to you know actual continuity because of things that happen at the end of that related to certain characters and of course the where, literally where you end up at the end all relates to things that get picked up picked up on later in the regular Kyle series. So it's but I do like that because it's you know it it's. There's some things in the story as when we get into it that are kind of questionable, but I but I do like the story overall, and I think it's certainly certainly kind of long overdue that we've kind of done that. Uh, I know Jim and I kind of talked about whether we should you know, maybe, even though I don't think he has any love for that story, but I we've talked about maybe that could be something that could get tied into pre-birth, except for the fact that uh, other than Hal, kind of sort of sort of the Specter kind of sort of is plays a role in that, but not anything to write home about. So I think it probably is more appropriate that you and I do it. <laughs> so. Yeah, the I think my favorite issue, that stuff that you guys have covered on pre-birth, would be I think one you covered towards the very beginning of the series when you did uh, was it uh, Green Lantern 119? Yes, the one when the first Ooh. issue that uh, Hal as the Spectre showed up in with, with Kyle. Yeah, the cover where he's holding Kyle in, in his, his hand, hand or whatever. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's Hal, one of my favorite issues yeah. actually of the Kyle Rayner run. And it's a great cover too. It's a great oh, cover yeah. with Hal Jordan, like what Hal Jordan is the Spectre. This could be bad. I think that's the blurb on the cover. Just like yeah, yeah. The, in a way, it which is kind of weird because it's not like we're done with that show, with that spinoff yet at all. But it, even though I do want to, I'm hoping we're going to do Soul uh, Soul War, the JLA Spectre two-part you know graphic novel Soul War. I'm really hoping that Jim and I will get to do that this year and obviously if we don't then we'll know that it's something we're going to be doing early next year but beside other than other than soul war there isn't that much that happens in the second to me in the second half of how jordan's tenure as a specter at least in the regular book there were some cool things they did with jsa towards the end as they were almost like priming the pump to get you towards rebirth but i but i still think that a lot of the stuff that happened early on in how jordan's run as the specter is the stuff to me that's very memorable, memorable, including yes, the Green Lantern 119 and uh, what JLA 35, which is literally Hal Jordan's first appearance after the, the miniseries when he became the Spectre. So I think that's, but yeah, cool. Was it Day of Judgment? He, I always could get confused. I think it is Day of Judgment, not Judgment Day. I think it is Day of Judgment. I always get confused. It's a mental block I have with that. But yeah, after that, I remember. Yeah, my fun. I mean, I have memories of that. Fond memories of that series because I remember they were hyping that in Wizard about how Hal was coming back and that Hal on Earth as they as they referred to that miniseries. Uh, it's a, I have memories of that. The Destroyer of Worlds arc in the Legends of the DCU. I really I really have ties to that. It means a lot to me. And the JLA 35 Green Lantern 119. And then there's a few issues in the book, but Soul War when we get to it, it'll be a cool one for people because it is more. It's less of this. It's less of the whole mystical. Um, and uh, metaphysical, and more of your kind of almost more like a straightforward, you know, Justice League and Hal Jordan te team up again against, and the dynamics of how that works 
and what they have to do and how they have to work together in order to succeed is pretty mm. is pretty cool. So, and I've actually been thinking about sending some feedback in to you guys because <laughs> anytime you do a recap of of a Spectre issue, I'm always like. When I listen to Jim's comments about the issues and stuff like that, and some of the stuff he laughs at or goes like, oh, God, that's so lame, or, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> every single time that happens, I'm like, isn't this the same guy who purposely collected this series and at some point during the Lantern Cast run said he actually enjoyed it? <laughs> like, what did he enjoy about it? <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think he enjoys some issues in it. <laughs> I think obviously, I think he bought it for a lot for a reasons a lot of people bought it in the beginning was because it was Hal Jordan and people wanted to support Hal Jordan getting the book again. Probably, I I I read it as it came out. I'm not gonna lie. As we get to, as we get to like the final, if you ask me now, like what happened to really re- uh, reminisce about and recollect what happened like in the last couple of issues of the Spectre. Uh, I couldn't give you that much verbatim at this point because it's been so long since I read them. As opposed to a lot of the stuff that we're still covering, like the last, like the last issue we did. I mean, that issue just because of how stylized it was, it was an issue that I, I've, I've always remembered that issue just because, just because it was unique. And just the same way I remember the issues that uh, I think Craig Hamilton did, not just because the art style is so unique, but because those were some of the better issues in the entire book, like the Parallax one, the Two Face one. Those are some of the the overwhelming majority of the really good issues in that book. If you were just picking out single issues, were actually drawn by Craig Hamilton. But I respect that book. I respect that series for what it tried to be because it tried to be different, uh, and it and it didn't try. And while I obviously didn't succeed on many entirely in what it was trying to do, I do appreciate that uniqueness more than let's say what we were getting in uh, like Lorfleys, you know, which was kind of unique but not really satisfying <laughs> for most part. But so some day, you know, Dave Mateus, it's like you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I think I think it worked for at least half of the, half of the Spectre series. But that was a nice. All right. That was a nice little tangent, which I didn't mind at all. But anything else before we move into non Green Lantern related stuff? No, no, I think we're, and we're still relatively close to our target time, so we're pretty good. <laughs> all right, guys, if you're not caught up on Game of Thrones. Stop. <laughs> the episode is over. Uh, visit the web, the web page and uh, find that link to Ron Mars's new comic so you can get a preview of it. Uh, find us on Facebook, Twitter, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> we'll see you next time. Uh, <laughs> if you are caught up on Game of Thrones, um, then uh, we're gonna we're gonna go from the, we're gonna go uh, on from there <laughs> and talk about. We already talked about the season premiere, so we're going to talk about episodes two, three, and four, and uh, what's been happening. Just because Mark and I like to geek out. <laughs> and finally, you caught up because you because you you were killing me, Smalls, without being completely uncut up on the, on the <laughs> stuff. Uh, but, and plus, there was a reference I wanted to make last issue. To be honest, I was still going to make it and be kind of like not specific about it. But since I did slip my mind, it worked out about when we we're talking about the PTSD thing and that I was going to mention uh, Theon and how mm-hmm. Theon at the end of episode two, the way he reacted at the end of episode two, that was completely realistic because it wasn't always just because he called him a cockless bastard that got him going. It's because of what was going on around him with people being dismembered right in front of him. That was enough. That was enough to, to trigger a PTSD moment no matter what. 
even if he was rational to realize if I go forward, he's going to kill her, and even if I kill him, what is it going to accomplish? Even beyond that, the fact that the that you know that that was a pure PTSD kind of situation, in which was perfectly understandable based on based on what happened with Theon. So, uh, in general terms, uh, see, episodes two and three were really kind of depressing for the most part. <laughs> I did like obviously Danny meeting John was really cool, even though that was not exactly you know there was you could cut the tension with a knife through a lot of that too. But God, it, it, and I said this to Jim after episode three. It's like I said, you know, if they don't, if things don't, if we don't, if things don't turn around, and Cersei doesn't have like like something go against her by episode four, this is really not going to be good for the season because a lot of people are just going to be Jesus Christ. It's like, but luckily that didn't happen. So. <laughs> Episode four. Which one do you, you so? Ep, should we, what What do you want to talk about first? Because obviously, because <laughs> episode four obviously is the biggest, probably is the the biggest episode we've had so far of the season because of everything that happened in it. Certainly, in the last twenty minutes of it. Episode Episode four is the the, the only one of the three when I was catching up on all three of them that um, that I was like standing up at various points going, yes. oh oh oh, do it! Come on. Do it! As we've talked about before on this show, that it seems like every season you have, there's a bunch of these goosebump, kind of like, yeah, you know, fist pumping, kind of yelling at the screen kind of moments. And almost all of them are Danny's. Once in a while, you can make a case maybe with the Battle of the Bastard episodes, a, l- a little bit episode with John. But all, almost, you, you know, uniformly, they're all with Danny. And of course, Dan- this was Danny's first one of the season. And. And that's exactly what it was. When, those, when the friggin' Dothraki were coming over the hill and friggin' she was riding Drogon coming out the Lannisters, because you, you knew what was going to happen. And they mm. did play up the tension at the end, of course, you know, with, with, with you know, Bronn and the Scorpion, and was, what, was he, was he going to hit Drogon? Was he going to kill Drogon? And stuff like that. Oh, you mean that scene from The Hobbit? <laughs> yeah. Well, well that, that, that's exactly <laughs> what you thought of when, 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 when they first saw, when, when you realized what Cersei and, uh, and her... Uh, her wizard alchemist hand were planning that you guess that's what it yeah that's what it reminded of reminded you of too but but they did it i mean that and the funny part is even though there were some cool parts to episode four up until like the halfway part that episode was relatively boring i even said to my, I, I, to, I, I don't know to, to me I, think... I thought it was i because i consciously said that out out loud when i was watching and said this is kind of you know as of now this is kind of boring and i don't mean as boring as game of thrones ever gets which is not truly boring but following episodes two and three, in which I was getting sick and tired of things going to shit. Well, so many of these things had like these episodes. I noticed throughout all of them, we got some really good one-liners. Oh God! Like, yes. like when, when, when the smirk that Arya has when she's fighting. Um, God, why did I forget her name? Yeah, when she's fighting Brianna Tarth. And she, who taught you that? And she goes, no one. Yes, that was funny. <laughs> I, I was like, yes. And then when Bran uh, says to uh, to uh, uh, Littlefinger, when he says chaos is a ladder, yeah. and the look on the the look on Littlefinger's face is like a look I've wanted to see somebody hat cause on Littlefinger's face someone, for a long someone time. Someone throwing his own shit back at him. You mean? <laughs> yeah, yes. just like I know. <laughs> Like he, he, he says, chaos is a ladder. He says four words, <laughs> and, and it wasn't like some big reveal or anything. It was just subtle, 
it was to the point. There was no lead up to it. There was no follow up after it. He says four words and it shuts Littlefinger down. <laughs> well, and and Brand has done a lot of that this season by referring to things that either that he you know like he would, even though it was kind of creepy, referring to like basically like he kind of was there and saw what happened with Sansa on her wedding night, knowing about Arya's list and the people that she's killed and the people that are still on her list. So which she, was a good way to prove to Sansa too. That Bran knows what he's talking about yes. and isn't just nuts because right. Arya acknowledges it. Right, and because Sansa just thought Arya was full of shit when she kind of referred to the list of people that, you know, that she was. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but that kind of, that kind of made it crystal clear that, oh, when Bran said it being you know the way Bran is now, so you know monotone and everything and non-emotional, that it made it clear that, that yeah. But that's just the idea that Bran kind of like knows all, you know, kind of knows all and sees all. But they've done also all the, so not just a little finger of his own line kind of being thrown back at him. There was even the stuff kind of with Arya and what in, in, Nymeria in that episode. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, they've, they've done a lot of that this season, which you give tons of credit for, for being able to to be able to, to do that. But I think, my God, I think Davos is the funniest son of a bitch, like, on this show. I mean, he is so goddamn funny because he throws he, – he, every, every Well, time, yes, but – He you is know, so funny. <laughs> I was bringing up one-liners because my favorite one-liner so far of the season – is is the one that Sam has when, when he's like, "How did you do that?" And he's like, "I read the book and followed yes, the instructions." That was that was that was funny. That that was funny, but but you know, but Davos is just he is just so. I mean, he I mean, and, and you know he's not really. I mean, sometimes he's trying to be funny in the sense of being like almost like breaking tension, kind of funny. With John and whatever's going on, but you just know that this, <laughs> this is kind of like like last like last week, like 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 you don't mind if I switch switch sides or whatever he said. <laughs> well, yeah, that was funny, but I laughed out loud when <laughs> Masada was introducing all the titles of Daenerys, <laughs> and then Davos goes, "Oh, uh, this is Jon Snow, King of the North, or whatever," <laughs> and then like. This a second or two pass. He's like King of the North, <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> Even Tyrion has like a little smile. Dav, I mean, Davos is a character that again, it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard to imagine this character is going to make it through to the end. But mm-hmm. it, but 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 when he dies, it's going to be really shitty because it's hard to. You could make a case, even including John, that you have you, that there. There really isn't another character who is more moral and noble than Davos. True. <laughs> and he's like the and he would be talk about it, you know a perf, which essentially he is right now. He basically is John's hand. You know he is and that and you couldn't think of somebody who would be better as a hand because of his because of his da- his intelligence, his experience, and his down to earth kind of wisdom, almost like a street smart kind of wisdom. Tyrion is smart, and Tyrion he judges. He is a good judge of people. But as we're seeing so far this season, Tyrion can either outthink himself or not, or not necessarily contemplate entirely what the other side is going to do, which he kind of, sort of, should because it's Cersei. Which is why I liked Danny's point to him, which might be true though, on a, only on a subconscious level. And we kind of saw the look in his on Tyrion's face in Episode Four when the Lannister army is getting decimated. That there might that that refer, might that, that there might be some truth in it that he maybe was not as 100% committed to what this what this end game was going to entail as far as related to the Lannisters and his family and everything that he had been a part of that maybe he wasn't deep down as 100% committed 
or had not cons- or or just was, or was just underestimating, you know, his own side for for deep down just because I don't know, just because maybe he just didn't he just didn't really want to think what the end game was going to be. Just like to me, and it was funny too at the end of 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 episode four when. And when you have this really critical moment when, you know, Drogon's hurt but not critically not se- seemingly critically hurt unless that, you know, unless the arrow was poisoned, he should be okay. Danny is just completely concentrated on pulling the the arrow out of out of her dragon. <laughs> Jamie sees this opportunity, he gets the spear on his horse and he's running towards her. And all Tyrion's thinking is you dumb bastard. <laughs> you stupid bastard. <laughs> It's like because not because he thinks Danny's in danger at all, because he knows that what's going to happen when he when when Jamie gets close to Daenerys, and it's not going to be good for his brother. <laughs> that it's just that, and and it's interesting because yeah, I mean you you kind of like I think I, I read something. I mean I, saw, I didn't read the article, but I saw the headline about the fact that how you know like the last like twenty so minutes of that episode was one of your ser- most seriously conflicted moments, like from a Morally, it, for a lot of people, it wasn't for me, which was interesting, and which I'll talk about. But for a lot of people, it was just a mo- really very. They were very morally conflicted in that part because there were so many characters that, that you either really like or kind of like, and they were diametrically opposed and literally at each other. Where at any moment something bad was going to happen potentially to any one of them, and it's like, what were you going to do? To me, it wasn't a conflict, which kind of pro, which was interesting. It kind of proves that even though I still think John's going to be the one sitting on the Iron Throne when the seat, when the show ends, Danny is clearly my favorite character. And the fact that I was literally rooting for her and Drogon to fucking burn Bronn, to kill Bronn at that point, because if I had to choose between Drogon being you know killed or seriously hurt and Bronn dying, to me it wasn't a conflict of who I wanted. And I love Bronn as a character. He's a great character. But I was more than willing to see him die because Danny and Drogon were more important to, to be okay. And the same thing with Jamie. I had no problem. I mean, you knew Jamie wasn't going to die that way because for various reasons. But I was perfectly content with Jamie being burned alive at that point because I, Drogon and Daenerys were more important to me. So my reaction, I thought, was interesting. Yeah. Um, I did like the... Uh, I did like the... Uh, the the cave scene with him and Danny. Yes, that was great. That was pretty freaking awesome. Um, I'm trying to think of stuff that's not just the most recent episode. I know it's hard <laughs> because that because clearly as through four through four episodes that's the best. There's no doubt. I mean, unless you're really a diehard you know a, a diehard Cersei fan, and I go, I'm sure there's people out there who are. Other than that, episodes two and three were really kind of depressing. They really, I mean, there were some cool things like Jorah. Like Jorah being cured of his grayscale, that was really cool. So you kind of expect him to show up soon with, to, to reunite probably with Danny. But but there are a lot of things that were you know the stuff with the you know with the you know with the, the Martells and then the Tyra. That stuff was even though you know obviously Oleana there had a great moment in making it clear to Jamie about you know that she was the one that killed Joffrey. That was kind of cool. That was her cool going out in a blaze of glory kind of moment, which was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, uh, there are people online saying that the wound that uh, Drogon uh, has is a lot like the same wound that uh, Drogo has or had that killed him. It looked like a minor wound until it wasn't. It could be. It could. Be. Uh... 
Like, she lost her husband, now she's going to lose her child. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think I think he's going to I think he's going to be okay. I think it was more the cuz he he didn't he didn't, you know, he didn't get shot in the wing and he didn't get shot in the heart. Um so I I think it's something again, unless it, you know, unless it was po- unless it was poisoned or something, I think because don't forget we we assu- we assumed Cal, you know Carl Drogo was going to die, but the real reason he died was because that you know the uh, the witch there kind of like poisoned him, and that guaranteed he was going to die. Maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe if they just simply rinsed the wound out, he actually would have survived. You don't know. Uh, but hopefully, hopefully, that's why that's why I was glad that at least at least in that episode nothing really bad happened. So, I mean. Seriously, at the time, happened to Drogon because this all because that was that was a, the big momentum switch in the season, and whatever momentum Dan, uh, Cersei had throughout episodes two and three came to a grinding halt. So if something, so if, if Drogon had died or something at the end of that episode, or was looking like he was going to die, that would have still kind of sucked the air out of a great a great victory. The good news is, assuming Drogon's okay now, of course everybody knows what the you know what the Lannisters are planning to do related to the dragon. So maybe they can come out; they'll be more prepared for it. I did like the fact that for the coming attraction for this week, so it looks like we get our moment where maybe John gets his dragon, even though very in it, you know in the early stages of John getting his dragon. <laughs> uh, which probably, I mean, if they if they. It'll, which will probably be Rhaegal, because obviously Rhaegal was named after his father. So it would kind of be appropriate if that's the dragon that John ends up bonding with, or vice versa, or if the dragon that bonds with John is the one that actually was named after his own father. So, so I think that I think that's I like that. I'm curious to see what's going to happen with the Iron Bank, because Jim and I talked about this too. Jim kind of thinks that it's not going to have what's <laughs> what just happened outside the gates isn't going to have any effect on on the Iron Bank, and I'm not so sure. Because it's really easy to say that we're going to, be, you know, once you give us the gold that you basically owe us, that oh, we're going to be good more or less. You're going to have like a, a – your line of credit's going to be really good again. It's really easy to say that when she's looking like the winner. And now that yeah. the, first, the first major battle between – real battle between the Lannisters and the Targaryen forces, which wasn't a battle at all, was a massacre. It's real easy to say all of a sudden, well, assuming they can even – assuming they even get the gold out of King's Landing and they sail back. It's the Bravos, right? That's, is that where the is that is that where the Iron Bank is? Is it Bravos? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I think I think so. But either way, just assuming the gold even gets back to the Iron Bank, even assuming that the representative who's been dealing with Cersei really wants to support her at this point, that doesn't mean the rest of the Iron Bank's going to want to support her. <laughs> they may just want to stay out of this because while yes, as she kind of played up in the first episode, banking a revolutionary is not a smart plan. Banking someone who Banking somebody who looks like they're going to lose, <laughs> and betting against the side that's got the three dragons and the Dothraki is not a smart move either. So they may decide, you know, we got the money we never thought we were going to get from basically that that our father owed us. We're going to kind of sit this one out a little bit and see how, see what happens before we start throwing money down a well again. But we'll have a better idea, I think, this episode about about that. Just like, and we have, we might actually get a White Walker sighting this week. <laughs> Based on coming attractions, anyway. <laughs> Though it might just be in Brand's vision. So and so that's that's something we might see. So far, that's playing out exactly how I thought. Like I said, I didn't think the White Walkers were going to be a major factor for the majority of the season because I think that's going to be the majority of the final final six episodes. I think it's interesting that it became such a um, 
you know, uh, a more difficult task for Danny. You know, like a lot of which you could have predicted, but I think a lot of people just because they knew it was going to be like the last, you know, seven episodes of the series, you know, and the last the last couple of seasons or, or whatever that all right, Danny's finally in Westeros. Uh, she's got a lot of experience under about tech belt and tactician and blah, 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 blah. She's just going to start rolling over people, which doesn't happen. Her plans get thwarted. Pretty soundly. <laughs> Tyrion's plans get thwarted pretty well. Soundly. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, but but to be fair, Danny herself doesn't really have any plans. Like she, the stuff that she wants to do. Even John is like, you can't win them by burning them. You can't you can't head down to King's Landing. Like so, even John is in a way agreeing with Tyrion. Like that is the wrong tact. You can't do that. Well, she's really she, she's really torn. Between you know this this duality of her in general, that and that's in a way that's what rep, that's what the in a way the if you the Tyrion Jon Snow perspective and the what the Ole, the Oleana Martell perspective, the Tyro, uh, Tyro perspective, mm-hmm. uh, because uh, and both both have their merits. The idea that you know that you're a dragon, be you know be be a dragon. The the idea that you know. At the end, of, you know, at the end of the day, that you know, if you want the Iron Throne, you're going to have to take it. You know, you can't just ask nicely for it. You know, they, if, unless they fear, you know, they're not going to they're not going to follow you unless they fear you. That kind of mentality. And then you have the other side, which is you know, with what, what Tyrion was trying to do, which and what what John you know, kind of like reiterated, just the idea that you know you can't, you know, whatever you're going to do, you just can't really, you can't be slaughtering innocents left and right. And then expect people to follow you because then then you're no different than what you basically what you're fighting against. So there's there, so there, she's trying to walk she's trying to walk she's trying to walk the fine line. She really is, and, and it's and it's and it is a difficult it is a difficult line. Now as far as the momentum going against her, yeah, in a way it's not what I think a lot of people wanted to see. But Danny's better as the underdog. Danny's been Danny has been the most effective, and to have moments like we had last season. When her back's against the ropes and you don't think – and it doesn't look like that she ha- she re- really can get out of something, that's when Danny's been at her best. And that gives you those kind of, yeah, kind of moments that we've gotten on the show from her a lot. And whether it's burning all the, you know, burning all the calls or, or turning, the, turning the tide on the slavers in the Battle of the Bastards episode last year when they thought they had her, when, they, when all three – when the other two dragons break free and they also burning their fleet and everything – all that stuff, or even Danny sailing home at the, at the end of the last episode of last season. That is because when Danny's the underdog, that's when she's at her best. So they almost had to do this. Plus, if you look at the history, there's kind of a track record in this show of uh, the side that ends up losing the war, looking like they're going to win the war in the beginning. So that kind of follows suit. I mean, Rob Stark looked like he was going to win too. I mean, lots. Stannis looked like he was going to win too. A lot of people looked like they were going to win just for it to end. And plus, it, it's it's you know. It raises Cersei up even higher from when she falls, because now there's still a lot of things that probably are going to happen this season. I'm so willing to bet you Euron doesn't make it out of the season. Uh, I don't. Cersei still might. I'm still probably would bet against it, but she's got a chance. But they can't. They can't bind their hands too much if you only have six episodes left and you haven't even dealt with the White Walkers yet. I mean. Yeah. I mean, 
I mean, what what are they going to do? I mean, yeah, we have three more episodes left. Uh, we have five, six, and seven still to go this season. What are, what are we going to do? Like basically not deal with the White Walkers until maybe the the wall could get the wall comes down at the end of episode seven this year, and and then we're. I mean, I do. I still think that a little finger might very well survive until into next season, maybe. Depending. I can't wait till he dies. I mean, I think a, I I read online that some like some threads are like. You guys know that probably what's keeping him alive in the series is our collective hate for the character. <laughs> we hate him so much that they're just going to keep him alive to piss us off. <laughs> well, well, partially and, and from, a, from a plot point because they need to make sure the Knights of the Vale don't bail on, on supporting John, John and, the, and the rest of the forces in the North. But I still think at least two of the... two. I still would bet two of the three between Euron, Cersei, and Littlefinger. At least two of them are going to go this season. I would bet the farm one has to go, but they can't keep too many. Dang. I think your, I think Euron goes. I think because they got to wrap that up because that's because once once the Greyjoy fleet is taken out of the picture as far as being an ally to Cersei, then she's back up Shit Creek again. That's what's that's what's given her her actually that's what's really given her 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 momentum the, the momentum that she had. You know, it was what preventing it. What it was, what pre- was preventing the Unsullied from being able to leave and come back, or get resupplied by the sea. All that stuff. You know, so it's the Greyjoy fleet that's really been the biggest pain in the ass. It really hasn't been, you know, the Lannister forces. And obviously, the and obviously, while the Lannisters still have some army, you would assume inside, you know, the Red Keep and everything inside King's Landing itself, they've lost a lot because obviously, uh. uh the, the part that was defending Casterly Rock, which was a smaller faction, that was all wiped out. And obviously, what's you know pretty much Danny and the Dothraki have wiped out the majority of you know the fighting force here. And obviously, she's going to play up next episode trying to get. And it may not be the Lannisters who she's appealing to. It might be the, you know the you know the the Tarleys and everything else that were fighting alongside the Lannisters that were basically had no choice because of you know what happened. When the you know when the Martells and the Tyrells fell, that so I, I'm I'll be curious to see what's going to go on. I, the last episode was really really good, and we and we needed that. I thought we needed that in episode four because two and three were just so such bummers that you just needed something to go Danny's way. I mean, John hasn't had a bad season so far, as far as things going horribly wrong for him. Couldn't be much worse than the beginning of last season when he was dead, <laughs> but. So John's season hasn't been so bad so far, but for Danny, Danny has had a shitty start to the season, other than the first episode. So she really needed this, and we'll see what you know. We'll see how this changes things. It'll be interesting to see what happens when John gets back to uh, Winterfell too, to see. And I like and I like the relationship between Danny and John as far as like the, the respect is kind of there, or growing. And I like the fact that Danny kind of turned the tides on him a little about how basically making it sound like you know. I have no. I'm, I will absolutely. I promise you. I'm going to help you in the north to deal with whatever on the other side of the wall. But you know, once once you bend the knee, and her kind of playing up the fact that oh, you know, don't let basically that if it's not a big deal, or whatever, don't let then don't let your pride get in the way. And now we know from a plot point, really, John shouldn't be bending the knee because technically she should be bending the knee to him because he is actually the rightful heir to the throne. <laughs> but still, it's enough to where you know John kind of. You know, there was a part of John that was at least going to think about what she said so I will be curious to see when they part what kind of relationship they're you know what, what kind of relationship they actually have to see if it changes and how that changes even before by the end of the season because you know they're going to be allies I don't you know, I still don't think 
I still don't think they're going to be a couple despite because it all depends when John finds out who he is too. If John finds out from Bran relatively soon, which he may not, because but if he finds out from Bran what his real a lineage is, I mean, he's not going to be involved with his friggin' aunt. <laughs> he's not going to choose right. to be in bed with his aunt. You know, I, and I, I and I'm may, call me a cockeyed optimist, but I still don't think that's the happy ending we're going to get to have an aunt and a nephew married sitting on the Iron Throne. I don't think that's going to work, especially if Danny still can't have. If it's really true, she can't have more kids. It doesn't solve the problem. They still need an heir. So John would have to have an heir with somebody else to keep the dynasty going. If she can't, yeah. have, if she can't have kids. So, but I, I don't. I think they're going to be allies. I don't think they. I don't think they're going to be a couple for that because I just don't. It's still icky, man. It's still icky. It doesn't matter whether traditionally it's icky to Targaryens or not. It doesn't matter. It's icky to us just because they're nice looking. They'd be a nice looking couple, and technically, from on, from the show's perspective, they're around the same age. Doesn't mean anything. They they shouldn't be together for that reason. I mean, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. Anything else? Not unless you have any. There's nothing else you wanted to. Nothing else. And the, the the middle three episodes so far that that struck. Uh, I'm I'm good. <laughs> nothing nothing in particular. I just it's it's just a lot of build up and a lot of excitement. Honestly, a lot of really good low one liners. There were some that uh, 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 what Tyrion. There were some that Tyrion had, but I, f- I forgot what they were. Yeah, it's been an interesting season for Tyrion so far. It's been a really humbling season for Tyrion so far, uh, which, may, which which does put him in an awkward position because he's always been the one to, to be able to kind of talk Danny off off the off the ledge, and you'll have to wonder if her if her respect for him is uh, teetering. As now, respect may be the wrong word. If her trust in him is teetering a little bit, because because everything he's so much of what he's done really has blown up in his face so far. Even back when he was taking, when he was running Marine, when she was when she was making her way back, that he didn't. You know, things have not exactly been perfect under his regime, or whenever under her, you know, his her his tutelage of her. So it makes it does make you wonder. It does make you wonder if maybe you know how that's going to turn out. Maybe Jorah, maybe Jorah will, be, will be the one to help talk her off the ledge again. If she's, if she hang, if she's getting too close to maybe crossing the line, maybe Jorah will be the one that be, is able to walk her back. Yeah. All right, we'll go ahead and close this out. Yep, I'll I'll close this out relatively quickly. Lanterncast.com, people. That's the website. Go check it out. We have lots of cool stuff there. Uh, Lanterncast at gmail.com. That's the best place to contact us and give us feedback and let us know what you think of these episodes and ideas for future episodes. We do have some listener feedback. We decided to just kick the can down the road since we didn't do a regular issue review episode this time around. But we'll, we'll at least deal with the Green Lanterns stuff next week during the next recording. I don't know about Corwin's. Maybe, maybe we should kick Corwin's so we do Hal in the Core since it is directly related to that. But but we can decide that later. Uh, we are on iTunes and Stitcher, so whichever platform you listen to us on, please give us a positive review. Uh, Facebook, Twitter, hashtag GLCast. You can locate us on any of those, or both of those. And last but not least, 708 Lantern is the voicemail. So leave us a voicemail and let us know what you think. All right, guys. We'll talk to you later. Good night, everybody. Good night.